The second reading this morning comes from the Acts of the Apostles. Um, I'm going to be reading uh, chapter 9, verses uh, 20 through 31. Uh, Those words are printed in your bulletins. Hear the word of God. And immediately Saul proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but the disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when they had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. And so he went in and out among them at Jerusalem preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea And sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. And was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It multiplied. Can somebody bring me a cup of water? Joan Clover's doing that for me. So repeat after me. Federal headship. By the power invested in me, by the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, I declare you to be theological geeks. Federal headship is a geeky theological term, but it is an idea that is woven throughout Scripture, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it is a concept that is used by some scholars to explain the doctrine of imputation. Now, imputation is itself a doctrine uh, that is rather geeky. So you might think of federal headship as theological geekdom squared. So let me see if I can explain this idea and not derail this sermon. Uh, Let me begin first with imputation. Imputation is uh, the idea that something is credited to an individual before they themselves have actually realized the thing that's been credited to them. They get credit before they've done the thing. Now there are two sides to this imputation coin. On one side, the sin of Adam is imputed to all mankind even before we're born. This is the doctrine of original sin. There's a book called the New England Primer. It was used in the 17th century to teach uh, American school children to read. Um, And now maybe in your uh, earliest reading books you learned your letters 
by reading lines like A is for apple, and there would be a picture of the apple, and B is for ball, and there would be a picture of the ball. I don't know if they teach that way. Mrs. Kaler, do they teach that? They still teach that way. Okay. Well, if we had been born mm, back in the 17th century in New England, we would have been using the New England primer, and it had sentences uh, like this for A. In Adam's fall, we sin it all. And there's a little picture of Adam and Eve and the serpent and the apple there in the Garden of Eden. In Adam's fall, we sin it all. And for B, thy life to men this book attend. And a little picture of the Bible. In Adam's fall, we synod all is a perfect schoolboy presentation of the doctrine of federal headship. Now, I understand that this doctrine of original sin, this doctrine that we are regarded as sinners even before we've had a chance to sin, seems unfair to some people, particularly uh, us as Americans. The doctrine of original sin seems like you get an F before you've even had a chance to turn in your first assignment. You get an F simply because you were born into the dummy family. And all the teachers know that the kids in the dummy family will fail. So here's your F. It seems unfair. But in Adam's fall, we sin it all. Every one of us born into the dummy family will in the end fail at the same test that our first father, Adam Dummy, that was his last name, failed. The doctrine of original sin seems unfair until you commit your first sin and then you really have nothing left to gripe about. Adam and Eve were given a test and they didn't pass it. You and I have been given the same test and we did not pass it. All of us are guilty of more sins than we can count and remember. So in Adam's fall, we sin it all, is what the doctrine of federal headship says about this one side of the theological coin. What is true of our original father is true of us, just because he's our father. It's almost like a genetic thing. If both of your parents have blue eyes, there is no way that you won't have blue eyes. If both of your parents were sinners, there's no way that you won't be a sinner. So welcome to the club. We're all a bunch of sinners here in this church. But that brings us to the B of the New England primer. Thy life to men, this book attend. In other words, if you want to mend your life, if you want to fix it, then you need to attend to, you need to pay attention to the Bible. All of us are born in sin because we're descendants of Adam, but God in His great love for us provides a way for us to mend our lives. And that we find in the pages of the Scriptures. Which brings us to the good news of the other side of the theological coin. If Jesus becomes our federal head instead of Adam, then rather than receiving an F on our report card, we receive a straight A, even before we've taken the test. By faith in Christ, the perfect righteousness of Christ is imputed to us, which isn't fair, I hope you see. By faith in Christ, our sins are blotted out and God only sees the perfect record of Jesus. That doesn't mean that we live perfect lives, but it does mean that we get credit For the perfect life that Jesus lived. We're born into the dummy family. We have the stain of 
sin from our first parents on our record even before we begin. And soon enough, we prove ourselves to be true children of the dummy family. We start sinning ourselves like all dummies who have gone before us. But by faith in Jesus Christ, we're adopted into a new family. The family of Christ, the family of God. And we receive the perfect record of our federal head as our own. We get credit even though we didn't do it ourselves. It's not fair, but that's called grace. Grace means getting better than we deserve. I'm glad of God's grace because if I had to depend upon my own record, then I would be in a really bad situation. Now, I mentioned this uh geeky idea of federal headship because in our reading from the Acts of the Apostles, we see a title applied to Jesus, which is all about federal headship. And that title is Son of God. This week we have read the one and only appearance of that phrase, Son of God, in all of the Acts of the Apostles. This is the only place that it shows up. And the author of the Acts of the Apostles uses this phrase to describe Saul's preaching. Saul, of course, when he went to the synagogue, would have preached a lot of stuff. He would have been preaching for hours and hours. But the way all of this preaching is summed up is by saying that Saul, quote, immediately proclaimed that Jesus was the Son of God. Okay, that's Acts 9.20. So what I want to do in this sermon is to talk a little bit about how this term, Son of God, is used in Scripture. And then I want us to spend some time in closing and thinking about why Saul, who would soon become Paul, was so keen for other people to know that Jesus is the Son of God. So let's begin in the Old Testament. Because Saul, of course, was a student of the Old Testament. He studied under Gamaliel, one of the great Torah scholars. Saul knew the Old Testament forward and backward. He had a large part of it memorized. And so when Saul uses the phrase, the title, Son of God, we can be sure that he has the Old Testament in mind. The very first use of the title, Son of God, in Scripture was for the entire nation of Israel. For all of the descendants of Abraham. And we see it in Exodus chapter 4. God says to Moses, You shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. Okay. Now we see this same kind of language where the son, the term son of God is applied to the whole nation. We see the same kind of language hundreds of years later when God declares through the prophet Hosea, this is Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. So the earliest Biblical use for the term Son of God is as a name for the entire nation of Israel, for the entire people of God. Son of God was also used as a title for the king of Israel, particularly for David and his descendants. The king represents the whole nation. The king is the federal head of the whole nation. And so, just as the whole nation is the Son of God, so the King of Israel, in a special way, is the Son of God. 
Speaking through the prophet Nathan to uh, to David, who at that time is just a shepherd boy, God declares, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Your throne shall be established forever. This, of course, is God's promise that David will not only be the king of Israel, but that the line of the kings of Israel would be forever in the family of David, that a descendant of David would be on the throne of Israel forever. That's a prophecy pointing to Jesus, a descendant of David, who is the eternal king of Israel. In Psalm 89, which is not a psalm of David, it's a psalm of Ethan, it's a psalm about King David, we read this. This is Psalm 89, 26 through 29. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever, and his throne as the days of heaven. This is similar to the prophecy of Nathan that a descendant, an offspring of David, would eternally be on the throne of Israel. So the first use of the term Son of God to appear in the Bible is for the whole nation of Israel. And then a second use of the term Son of God applies to the King of Israel who represents the whole nation. So 600 years before Jesus is born, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon destroys the last remnants of David's kingdom. And it ceases to exist as an independent nation until the 20th century. For hundreds of years, the people of Israel living in exile and living under foreign domination, after this uh, invasion by King Nebuchadnezzar, they begin to look forward to and long for and hope for the coming of a Messiah, the anointed King of Israel who would reestablish the throne of David. That Messiah, in a special way, is called the Son of God. Psalm 2, which was written during the reign of King David, but in the time of the Babylonian exile, became a messianic hope, a psalm of hope, a psalm of longing for the day when God would reestablish the throne of David. In that psalm, we read this, The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And it is as this Son of God, the Messiah, the one who restores the throne of David and again represents the entire people of God, that Saul, who will soon become Paul, refers to Jesus. This is the Son of God that Saul declares Jesus to be. We read in Acts chapter 9 a passage that describes Saul's earliest days of preaching as a follower of Jesus that he, quote, immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying he is the son of God. Saul could have said a thousand things about Jesus. But the first thing out of his mouth is he's the son of God. Now, if we jump ahead to Acts chapter 13, we hear Saul, who is now the Apostle Paul, preaching about Jesus as the Son of God based upon Psalm 2. Paul says, and we bring you the good news 
that what God promised to our fathers, this he has fulfilled to us his children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. All of the sermons that are recorded for us in the New Testament are, uh, they're not transcripts of everything that was preached. They're what we might call highlights. Those highlights give us the flavor of the preaching. They give us the main point of the preacher, the essential message. When John the baptizer began to preach, we get a little summary of his preaching in Matthew chapter 3. It reads this way, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in the next chapter, Jesus appears on the scene and Matthew tells us from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those little snippets give us a flavor of the preaching of John and Jesus. And when Peter preaches his first sermon on the day of Pentecost, his focus was on the work of the Holy Spirit and the fulfillment of the prophecy in Joel that when Messiah comes, the Holy Spirit would be poured out on men and women and that men and women would prophesy. That's a a little flavor of the preaching of Peter. So now in Acts chapter 9, Saul, who has regained his sight, heads off to the nearest synagogue and he immediately begins preaching. And the first words out of his mouth, his essential message is this, Jesus is the Son of God. So I had a weird week and this is a weird sermon. Some sermons have three points and they're easy to follow. This one needs a GPS and a roadmap so we don't get lost. But let me go back to where I began. To this geeky idea of federal headship. Because it is the crux of Saul's insight on the road to Damascus. Saul had been opposing Jesus with all of his strength. And then in a moment he's turned around 180 degrees and he becomes the greatest supporter of Jesus. And where the light went on for Saul was when he realized that Jesus is the federal head of the people of God. That's what Son of God means for Saul. And at the beginning of the book of Romans, where the Apostle Paul is introducing himself to a church that hasn't met him, Paul uses this long and winding sentence. Paul... A servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of the name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus. Now that's a long and complicated sentence. Nobody writes that way anymore. But notice that the topic, the subject of the good news that Paul is preaching is this, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that Jesus Christ is a son of God in a double sense because he's a son of God as a descendant of David according to the flesh. And he's declared to be the son of God by the Holy Spirit. Paul's good news 
is that Jesus is the Son of God. And for Paul, that meant that Jesus is the King of Israel and that he is the representative of the people of God, that he is their federal head. So why is that important? Paul explains federal headship in Romans chapter 5, where he talks about two different kinds of federal heads. Listen carefully. This is chapter 5, verse, well, verse 12, verse 17, and verse 19. Sin came into the world through one man. Okay, that's going to be federal head number one. And death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, that's federal head number one, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Federal head number two. For as by one man, federal head number one, disobedient, uh, for as by the disobedience of one man, Many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one man, federal head number two, many will be made righteous. In Adam's fall, we sin at all. That's the one side of the federal headship coin. Because of one man's sin, death reigns for all men. But Jesus Christ is the other side of that same coin. Jesus Christ is the new Adam. And unlike the first Adam, this new Adam didn't sin. And not only did he not sin, but he also died an atoning death to pay for the sins of other people. By the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. You and I were born with Adam as our federal head. We were born into the dummy family. That's bad news. But the good news is we don't have to stay in that family. By faith in Jesus Christ, we can be adopted into a new family. By faith in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, He becomes our federal head. He becomes our King. He becomes our representative before God. And what is true of our federal head becomes true of us. Jesus is the beloved Son of God. We become God's beloved children. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. We are imputed righteous. Because of our faith in Christ. In Adam, mm, there's only sin and death. But in Jesus, there is righteousness and life. So the essential question. What family do you belong to? Who's your federal head? After you die, which family reunion will you attend? I was born into the dummy family. Adam was my federal head. And with him as my original follow, father, I followed in the footsteps of sin and death. That's the condition I was born into. That's the bad news of the gospel. In Adam's fall, we sin it all. But here are the good news. At some point in my life, the light went on. Not as dramatically as it did for Saul, but the light went on and I realized that I was fighting God, that I was fighting against God. Well, because God is king and I wanted to be king. Because God was calling the shots and I wanted to call the shots. 
And so God opened my eyes and I realized that my fight against God was futile. Not only was it futile, but I was also missing out on how great it is to have a real king as my king. And so I switched families. I left the dummy family. And I joined the family of God. That required me to stop pretending that I was the king. And to swear allegiance to King Jesus. And that's called being born again. It's a strange thing. Being born again. It happens differently for different people. But there comes a moment in the life of every born again person. When they start over. And they head in a different direction. When they swear allegiance to a new king. So let me put the big question to you in geeky theological terms. Who is your federal head? Is it Adam? The representative of the fallen human race? Or is it Jesus? The new Adam. The son of man. The son of God. The eternal king who reigns on the throne of David. Let us pray. Father God, all power and glory belong to you and all praise to your Son. We thank you that you have shown us your Son and that he is the Son of God. We thank you for the scriptures and the Holy Spirit that enable us to switch our allegiance from Adam and the human race and to switch it to Jesus. And to become part of the family of God. We pray this day that you would open our eyes to see the truth of what Saul preached in the synagogues. That Jesus is the son of God. We pray that you would give us the faith to cling to Jesus. Father God we recognize that we have no hope if we're standing on our own record. That we have not lived the way your law demands. And yet you've given us this good news that if we cling to Christ, that we will be received as beloved sons and daughters of the Most High. Treasured, blessed, redeemed. Let that be our truth this day. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.